Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Seria Chronicles is a Bayer Chronicles production. Hello and welcome to episode six, episode six, I don't know how we got here this quickly, of Syria Chronicles, the not as new as it used to be podcast about Italian football with me, Nikki Bandini. And the wonderful Mina Rizzuto. You forgot my name. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was wondering which adjectives to use. Oh, I, I was, I, I've got so many adjectives, all of them good for you, Mina, obviously. Um, but I went with wonderful. You know, we've got a full season. We'll get to others. But, <laughs> oh, I'm um, excited. <laughs> I put pressure on myself now that I don't need. Um, wonderful Mina Rizuki, who is, of course, delighted uh, this morning because we have had. Quite the weekend again in Syria. It's been a ridiculous Syria season. I feel like every time we come here, quite the weekend. We had Simone Inzaghi back with uh, playing against the Lazio team. We had a crazy comeback for Milan. We had a fascinating Netflix show featuring yours truly, Mina. Yes, yes. Which we'll get to before the end. But I know, I know someone is high on Max Allegri life right now. So I need to let you come right in and tell us how you enjoyed Juventus against Roma on Sunday night. 
I mean, if we're talking about aesthetically, then this was like not the funnest game to watch, let's be honest. But look, I'm a Juve fan, right? Um, so I know that the, the ethos, the philosophy is that results count more than anything. And it's interesting because, you know, obviously, like there's a lot being said right now about Manchester United and Gary Neville was talking about, you know, Ole and stuff and, and how they learned under Sir Alex Ferguson that when times are tough and the team is drowning, you just go back to basics and your priority is just to not concede a goal, to try to build up your confidence and then hopefully start finding a way through grinding out the results and then you can start going forward. Juventus were drowning. I mean, under Pirlo, they had never managed more than three wins in a row. And frankly speaking, the start of the season was shockingly poor. I was so scared of what I was seeing. And then when you added to it the injuries, the the absences, I I always believed in Allegri. I just didn't know how it was going to be done. And this is what he's done. He's just back to basics, tight lines, good defending, that spirit of sacrifice, that desire to suffer for the result is just so, it's so lovely to see as a Juve fan. <laughs> I know that others want to see the dazzling football, you know, but I, I've never been a Barcelona or a Milan fan. I've been a Juve fan. So for me, I love the suffering. I, I enjoy it. I, I love being like, yeah, you know, um, well done. This was such a, a vintage Juventus win. It was Chesney saving a penalty. It was Kalini giving it his all, you know. Um, Chesney saving anything, Mina. We're on to a new track. <laughs> What did you think of that? Like, as in the guy, you know, was at fault for everything. And then all of a sudden he's growing, saves against, you know, Milan and, and Kululu. This this wonderful penalty save, Chesney's back. Could be, could be. It's so interesting hearing you talk about all that. Because, of course, I grew up when I was a little kid and I first got introduced um, to my football fandom, which was as an Arsenal fan. You know, my first sort of entry point into that it got different because Arsene Wenger showed up but the first entry point was George Graham and it was one nil to the Arsenal that was what everyone sung and of course when it's your team you take quite a lot of pride in the one nil because it feels like it's defiant doesn't it one nil is you know what like we're not here to, to show off we're just here to win and that that is brand Juventus and it's always why Max Allegri for me has been such a sort of perfect fit at Juventus because let um you know let Milan be the dreamers who go and who go and conquer Europe, or perhaps Inter really are the dreamers, because Inter are the club who who dream big and sign these fantastic players and then often have disappointed, although in the end they've also had the greatest glory of ever. But they've also had yeah. the greatest glory of any Serie A club. I mean, they won the treble, which no one else has done. And Mourinho pointed out. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, well, we'll get to that. Um Milan, who have their grandiose ideas of, of being a European club. You know, the Rome clubs who have these identities that are very sort of embedded in ideas of Rome, their identities so tied to, to, to being uh, representatives. I think, honestly, when you get into it, like this came up in the interview with Totti that I talked about last week, being gladiators in Rome. I think Juventus' identity, I always come back to it. It's just the old Boniperti quote, which is winning is, you know, is the only thing. It's not an important thing. It's the only thing. Like that's, that's, that's what you, you're here to do is to win football games. And Max Allegri is, is that to a T. Having said that, having said that, and you knew this was going to come up, Mina, and you must have done, there was an incident in this game. Juventus defended really, really well all game, but Chesney, before saving that penalty, gave away a penalty. And it's a huge turning point in the game because I can't 
I can't accept that the best interpretation of football has that whistle going and play being stopped dead and not giving that second for Tammy Abraham to put the ball in the net. This is a really strange one. I I find it very odd that Orsato would say afterwards that, you know, when it comes to a penalty, the advantage wasn't going to be given. No, it's up to your discretion. It's up to the referee's discretion to decide what to do, whether to play advantage or to whistle. And the whole point of VAR, from what I understood from the linesman, from the referee, is to let play continue and then sort it out, basically, you know. And always, always when you are coming to actually give the advantage, you allow play to develop at least for one or two seconds to see whether or not that's something they can win. But having said that, in many ways, I can say to you, if I was a Roma fan, I'm sort of glad because if the goal had been, if he, the whistle hadn't gone and they played advantage and, and you know, Tammy obviously did score the goal, that they would have gone back and seen that Mkhitaryan touched the ball and then it would have been ruled out because, you know, even if it's an accidental, anything that touches the hand is immediately deemed out and cancelled, even if it's accidental. So those are the laws. So actually, a penalty is the best thing. Um, but then should VAR have asked for the penalty to be taken another time? Because apparently Kalini had a foot in there. I didn't see that clearly, but others swear by it. So then potentially... That's the one thing that I would have been irritated about was that the penalty wasn't retaken. Um, but when do you ever imagine that Veritu misses a penalty, right? So I don't know what to make of that whole thing because, I mean, frankly speaking, I know that everyone's talking about the goal, but it would have been discounted anyway. So I, I don't know. There's, there's so many layers to this that I think are interesting. I mean, the first and foremost is for people who aren't, you know, I guess seasoned watchers of Italian football who perhaps are, are newer to the league and, and, um, who, um, are hopefully, you know, using our podcast the way to get into it. I really hope that happens, by the way. I hope there are some people who are using this podcast, like, oh, let's get more into the league. This specific referee, Daniele Orsato, my God, does he find ways to make himself the story <laughs> so much of the time. I mean, if there's any one predictable narrative in all of this, it's at the end of this game between Juventus and Roma, we're talking about flipping Orsato because it's always about Orsato. And, you know, he said afterwards, this is what we're taught. We're taught to, 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 to blow the whistle. Um, and, and that's, you know, what we're supposed to do, which I find really odd guidance, by the way. If you're telling that the, there's this big conversation all around uh, Europe at the moment, I feel like where we're telling linesmen not to raise their flag, so to, to raise their flags, but referees not to stop the play when the linesman raises their flag. We let the offside decision play out and then we come back and, and make the decision correctly. How does it make sense to do that differently on a penalty? Why would you say stop the play immediately and not see how the action ends if it's if we're doing that on offside? I find that odd put it in its own box, you know, that that isn't a sort of here or there about whether or not this specific decision should have gone one way. I, I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's a shame that this has become uh, a big talk. I'm really sorry, I got a bit distracted there for a second. Someone was in my garden. I don't know what it's about. I'm going to have to go look at that afterwards. But <laughs> Wait, hold on, like man or what? A thief or? I, I think it's a downstairs neighbours. The, the, the gardens are adjoined. No one's breaking in, so we're all right. Okay, so we're all right. Okay. <laughs> sorry for that, uh, listeners. That was a bit of a sort of distracted moment. You know, you're, you're, sort of, you're, you're right that letter of the law, that goal could have been disallowed for the handball afterwards, which to me is, is one of those ridiculous ones because it's that sort of, 
I mean, literally the guy's falling over, like, and it's the sort of your hand is outside the frame. So in 2021's understanding of the handball, that, that is, that is a, a handball, but I mean, he's literally falling down. Like it's not a, a controlled motion. So I, I find that fits into the frustration with current rules, but you know what? The rules are what they are. The decision was what it was. I thought Jose was surprisingly calm about it afterwards. I was expecting a more, um, fiery response from him at full time. And he was actually quite chill about it. Is this, is this a new Jose Mourinho we're seeing me now? I don't know. He was, uh, I mean, he still flashed the three fingers at Juventus fans, but who are honestly just <laughs> subjecting him to so much abuse throughout. So it, it's quite fascinating that he managed to really keep it in and not be so angry, I guess. But yeah, I, I do think that he's enjoying himself. I don't know whether Italy does that because I remember watching Ronaldo for Juventus and I thought, I don't see this really angry man, you know, that I sort of was so used to seeing at Real Madrid. And I wonder whether they just come to Italy and then they just love the pasta and everything and they're just so happy that no one's angry anymore, you know. Um, So I wonder what's going on there. Also, can I just say something when it comes to the one nil? I mean, obviously, I supported Juve after I told you the back heel. And that was like for me, it was like love at first sight. Yeah. But then there was that game against Real Madrid, who you know I have a soft spot for um, because it was the first stadium, I guess, that I ever really went to. And Angelo Delivio had 1-0 written in marker on the back of his hand. And he flashed it to Real Madrid. And Mihailovic at the time um, saw it and scored the goal. And actually it was Real Madrid that won 1-0 because he was so angry at seeing that. And I remember at the time, I mean, he has written uh, written other scores before, but he said Juve at the time were the one nil team. And I just sort of, I'm just mm. so like, I mean, that always stayed with me because Lippi loved a one nil scoreline. And I just love that there's a coach now who loves a one nil scoreline. And even if somebody came like Guardiola and we were winning six nil, there's still going to be a part of me that wants that one nil victory. So just that was just a side note that I wanted to tell you because it was just like my past. I know. I love that. I love the side notes, Mina. I love the, I love the, the personal story. I think it's really interesting. Like what you just said about like, um, Mourinho as well. And like this is coming to Italy and trying himself to, to take it beyond the sort of not being a big grump after the game part of it. Mourinho's Roma are, f- are fun to watch. So I actually thought they, they approached this game in a really entertaining way. I thought there were parts of the game, especially in the first half, where Roma played some really nice football. Mm. Tammy Abraham, I mean, the, the the run that leads up to that penalty is is brilliant. I mean, I, I love it. Like Tammy Abraham is tiptoeing through the the Juventus defense with a hip swerve and a shimmy, and and it's 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 wonderful. Um, but 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 we've talked about it before, Pellegrini as well. I don't know. This is it's not what I expected. If I'm being totally honest, I've watched so many Mourinho big games in in different leagues, including when he was at Inter, but certainly through various stints in the Premier League. And I feel like Mourinho's first instinct is is normally to sort of be solid, to be allegory, frankly, don't concede first and, and then work out the rest afterwards. And that wasn't Roma in this game. Now, I love it as a sort of neutral who's enjoying the spectacle. I think it made the game a more interesting spectacle that Roma played like that. But this is already the narrative. Last season, Paolo Fonseca got some good results, but he lost the big games. Mourinho has had some good results and he's lost the derby and he's lost to Juventus. Is this history repeating or is it just things that happen and it'll, it'll change soon? 
Okay, I read this sentence that, I mean, I didn't think anything was, was sort of better phrased than this. And I do, honestly, I don't remember. I would like to say Corriere dello Sport, but they're usually so pro-Roma that I wouldn't have said. Um, it said Roma are a solid but untalented team. Here's the thing. I think that was a little Ooh, bit harsh. I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> but think of it. Hold on. Let me just want to make sure that it is what it is. Yeah. It's a team that has are a non-talented but solid team. That was what's written. Here's the thing. I, Tammy Abraham isn't awesome. Yeah. Like when you're looking at the level of pure quality at the moment. Okay. That's a, that's a bar that few will hit. Few, yes. Absolutely very few. Yeah. But right now, when you look at their team, you look at their defenders, they're all very, very good, but no one's exceptional. You look at their midfield, they're very good, but no one's exceptional. You look at their attack, everyone is really good, but no one is exceptional. Um, Pellegrini, I would say, is is the sort of the starriest quality alongside maybe Abraham, I would say. Yeah. Um, I think mm-hmm. Patricio is certainly an upgrade from everyone else. But I think one of the reasons why Mourinho is mildly happy as well as being angry is because I think that he saw his team really fight it out there. But he understood that there are limitations. And at the end of the day, you are fighting a team that sometimes has the quality just individually to make the difference. On this occasion, it came from Dicilio that no one in the world would have expected. Quadrado to Dicilio, what a combination. That goal was incredible. Exactly. Because I don't know whether it's Bentancourt and Moise Ken, it's Keen, it's sort of both of them, right? But it's Dicilio's, what he did on a tactical level. Like I remember Antonio Conte using Licksteiner so well on a tactical level. He was that very much that man, that outlet for the pass that then delivered the crosses in. Um, and, and this is exactly how Dicilio was used within that match. It's just that ability to cross between the wings. And it was just a, a, a very, he was, he was just exceptional, frankly speaking. And I thought it was really interesting afterwards when Allegri said, you know, for the talent that he has and for the technical ability, he, he should have had like twice as many successes in his career. But it was just this Italian sort of side that Juventus were with seven Italians starting, Locatelli, Moisekin, you know, Dicilio, Bonucci, obviously there's just, it, it seemed like this was traditional Juve, you know, like one nil, you know, great cross in, you know, everyone just fighting for it and then defending like absolute warriors. Um, and I think that for Mourinho, he can be happy because on this level, I can honestly say there was an offensive scheme. Perhaps if Pellegrini was in better form, because I feel like something was a little bit missing there from him. Mkhitaryan was just really suffocated by Juve's um, defending really. And so I, I, there was the inability to make the difference for Roma, but otherwise it, it was more like a defensive performance. And Mourinho is probably going to say, well, you know, we're a limited side. So we don't have that star quality necessarily to make the difference in very tight games. He'll say that after spending, I mean, he didn't spend, obviously the team did, spending about 100 million euros in the summer. I mean, Roma have thrown some money around. Yeah. I, I, I don't agree with Corriere de la Sport's suggestion that they are a team without talent. I think you can... I don't know if it's Corriere. I, I read it somewhere. I, like, I don't think it's them because they love Roma. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can certainly go with a less talented squad than Juventus. Though I think when you look at this Juventus starting eleven, it was not Juventus starting eleven that you go, wow, was it? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's so a starting true. eleven that sure the defense is 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 solid, but Chesney up till now has been having a rough season. Dechilio is not someone who anyone's putting at the top of their list of, of Serie A defenders. No, but come on, you have to think of Federico Chiesa, Locatelli. I mean, these guys just won the Euros, right? I mean, Pellegrini. Sure, 
should have won the Euros, but, you know, was, wasn't part of it. Yeah. And then you've got Giorgio Canini and Bonucci, like players for the Champions League. So maybe he thinks in that level they were better. I, look, I do think one of the really interesting narratives that I, I can't remember if I brought this up last week or not. One of the narratives that's really standing out to me in, in Italian football this season, um, this Serie A season, is I really feel like a lot of the best um, performances uh, that are happening in Serie A right now are being driven by Italian players. I think mm. Italian football, not just Serie A, is, is having a moment. Mm. And it was interesting to me. I I, I only realised this afterwards. I'm not going to pretend I had clogged in myself I think this might even have been an opta tweet that I noticed it and then went and was like oh yeah uh, Juventus had seven Italians starting against Roma which is the most they've had since 2015 and actually that core does include some players who again you wouldn't go oh they're one of the best players in Serie A I mean Bernadeschi a, a year ago we would have joked about but Bernadeschi since the Euros has has started to be useful to Juventus again and that's as I don't know it's cool actually like it's cool that um the international team is has done some things for for the league team. But can I, I, w- I was going to say like Bernadeschi has been amazing. There was just this one point, I don't know if you saw, but Kalini sort of drives forward. And all of a sudden I'm looking for Locatelli uh, because he's the only player I look for when I watch Juve. And he just immediately dropped mm. back and filled the gap that Kalini just vacated. That level of tactical intelligence for me, like it really makes my heart sing. And and I think that when you have an identity and a plan, even a basic identity, the way that Juventus have now, coaches like Stefano Pioli and coaches like Massimiliano Allegri, even Antonio Conte, can always bring out the best of their players and develop youngsters when you have a plan to revert to. And I think that Bernadeschi really understands what he's being tasked with doing. And, and I feel like that is making the difference for them, because I think this is why I trust him. This is why I, I trust Sadie less, perhaps, you know? Um, and this is why, like, purely just look at what he's doing with Davide Calabria. I know I talk about him a lot, but just really the, the, the way that this player is improving. And when you see clear identities, I think it helps bring out the best in Dicilio or Locatelli or Bernadeschi. And this can only be a wonderful thing for Roberto Mancini as well. It's one of the old um, sort of recurring themes of the Italian national team, which was interesting. It was really um, one of the standout things actually about Mancini's team this summer was that it wasn't true. But very often the best uh, Italy teams historically have tended to have Italiuve, the core mm-hmm. of Juventus players in the team. That's one of those trends that's repeated. So interesting to see Juventus going back in that direction. There is always more that we could say about this game, but unless you've got something else burning through you right now, Mina, maybe we should chat about Lazio Inter as well. Yeah, because I mean, no, there was a, shake the head. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I mean, if we're talking about controversies, what's more controversial than Lazio Inter? No, abbiamo proseguito un'azione proseguita dall'Inter con un giocatore per terra, quindi il regolamento mi sembra molto chiaro, gli arbitri hanno anche invitato più volte le squadre a non mettere la palla fuori. Scene da Far West che si vedono solo in Italia perché io ho fatto un anno di Premier e non ho mai visto una squadra chiedere di buttare la palla fuori. Take it away, Nikki. What did you think? Oh my goodness. Well, to set the scene for anyone who didn't see it, um, Lazio <laughs> win uh, 3-1. It was uh, Inter took the lead. Lazio equalized through a Chile Mobile penalty. And then this, the second Lazio goal, let's go 2-1 up on uh, a situation that in some sense, you've seen you've seen this play out in football before. It's not the first time it's ever happened, but Federico Di Marco 
goes down injured while Inter are attacking. Inter continue to attack. Lautaro Martinez takes a shot. The uh, uh, attack breaks down because uh, the, the shot is saved, I think. I'm trying to remember now if it's actually saved or if it's just off target. Lancio immediately uh, counter and go up the other end and uh, Felipe Anderson scores to put them 2-1 up. Now, Inter's position on this is, is that Lazio should have kicked the ball out of Inter touch. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, hang on, Inter finished their attack. Now, the counter to that that's come from Inter is we didn't know that Di Marco was down injured. That was behind Lautaro when he's attacking. And the attack that Lazio make on the counter does come right past Di Marco. I mean, Immobile passes the ball like really like about a foot to the side of him. They, they can't not see that he's there. You know, again, letter of the law decisions here. Lazio are under no obligation to stop. The referee is under, should stop the play only for a head injury, which it wasn't, so he doesn't do it. Uh, you've seen plenty of times, if you've watched football in across Europe, you've seen plenty of teams do this and and it happens. On this occasion, there was a, a big sort of sense of, of anger about it from Inter's side. And I, I do understand both sides. I'm sorry, I feel like I've slightly overemphasized this, that this happens. I'm just sort of trying to say it's not like a unique situation in football. Sometimes teams stop, sometimes they don't. Normally they do, but for sure I've watched Premier League games where this has happened. Teams have kept playing. Can I interject and say that when the goal was scored, Denzel Dumfries and Lats and Inter were so angry, they almost physically attacked um, attacked him for scoring the goal. Yeah. And Lautaro Martinez, who is the man who they say didn't see everything, but when he received the ball, he was facing that way. So he received the ball with facing the incident so maybe obviously you are in the middle of your game you may not notice or whatever it is but that is when he then obviously turns around has a shot on goal and then it goes to Lazio take it away sorry yes I I think the 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 morality side of this I find simultaneously interesting and not something that I have like a super strong position on I think that inter plainly very very genuine sense of injustice and a, and a feeling that this shouldn't have happened, certainly from some of the players, like you said, Denzel Dumfries, really upset about it. And we have precedent of, of teams in the world responding to these sorts of situations differently. A famous, famous one, of course, is Marcelo Bielsa when he was at Leeds uh, manager against Aston Villa saying, no, 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 we shouldn't have scored that goal. We should have stopped play, letting Aston Villa um, score a goal back right away to, to offset it. And in fact, the reason that that is um, in my head is that after the game, Maurizio Sarri did say to Handanovic, they got into a conversation, Maurizio Sarri, the Lazio manager, Handanovic, the Inter goalkeeper. He said, um, he said, what did you want me to do? I did put my hands up and tell my players to stop. So Sarri said he didn't want his players to score that goal. Handanovic said, you could have done what Bielsa did, which would be to let us go and score a goal right back. I this is just madness. Sorry, this is I am gonna interject here because Frankie's go, 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 this is just everyone talks about oh these old traditions and, and I get accused all the time. Yeah, Gab got so angry with me once when I was talking about how I still hate the fact that teams are happy to run up the score line. Like you don't need to score six goals, like the team's already destroyed. Stop, yeah. And he's like, What are you talking about? Move on into the modern era, and he gets so angry at me, yeah. But oh, DeMarco, who fell and started rolling around, and then yeah, miraculously got up like nothing ever happened, yeah. 
I'm sorry, it's a business, you know, like at the end of the day, like Lazio is trying to win a game here and Lautaro Martinez, oh, he didn't see, so it's okay, he had a shot, what can he do, right? Well, Lazio are trying to win a game and this is Inter, this is a big match, they're trying to make top four because it makes financial difference. This is a business now, like you can't just every time somebody falls because frankly speaking, I mean... if you're playing against Dybala, he's going to be on the floor for the majority of 60 minutes. Do we now <laughs> play football? You know, like this is, I have no issue with it, but to physically attack the player after he scores a goal, like you're so angry with the sporting injustice of it all, you know? And I just think, here's the thing. This is what bothers me is that Simone Inzaghi said this so well after, and I think he had prepared this match so well. Inter was so on top throughout the match. I think they had the better chances. They had the more fluidity. They had the better play. They were owning this game. This happened. You still have 10 minutes. What I love about Inzaghi and what I love about Gasparini is that they are two optimists and that counteracts the kind of purely, not sorry, not purely, rather Allegri, um, and Antonio Conte, who are pessimists, who always want to secure everything. But they're optimists. They think 10 minutes, I can score three goals. And that's what Izagi was saying. Like, let this go. Don't lose your head. We still have time to make up for this. But they didn't. They let that play on them. And that is the reason they've lost this, Inter screwed themselves. And so they can't keep saying, oh, well, you should have taken this out and start physically attacking and no one's allowed to celebrate. And oh, my God, look at us. We're crying for not. This is madness. Move into the modern era. You want to take part? You want to win the Champions League? You want to be part of this world? Then I'm really sorry, but move on. I bloody love you, Nina. Like sometimes even myself, I feel myself being too much of a fence sitter and you've just smashed that. Like I'm just being honest, you smashed that. Because I think that there's a really important point in what you, well, I always important, but there's a point that really like um, connected with me and what you just said, um, which is like, who among us is pretending that players don't feign injury? It happens all the bloody time and it happens in every league in Europe. So don't make this an Italian thing either if you're listening to this and going, oh yeah, in Syria. Rubbish. Happens in every in every top league. So the responsibility to knock the ball out, that's actually why we got these more specific rules in football about the referee should stop it for a head injury. Because a head injury, you know, you can't mess around with that exactly. head injury. We need to make sure we're taking care of it. And that's why I, I, I yeah, I, I think you, I think you smashed it. I don't need to add any more to that. Um, I, I think it's, it's really sort of such a, it was such a melodramatic afternoon because it started with Simona Inzaghi goes under the Lazio curva. I was interested in that, by the way, like I, because I didn't know how the curva would take to Inzaghi. Inzaghi, who really did do brilliant work at Lazio, reestablished them as, as a sort of force on the fringes of the Champions League places. But the way he left, having agreed to sign a new contract at Lazio, and like the next day Conte's gone to Inter and suddenly he's taking the Inter job. I didn't know how that relationship was going to be. So it's interesting to see that the Cordova wanted him to come under, that he still was warmly received there. Then at the end of the game, as well as what we've had during the game, the end of the game is already rancorous because of what's happened with that goal. You then have on top of that, this ridiculous situation (laughs) where Luis Felipe is larking around I mean, look, if that was my friend, I wouldn't have appreciated it in Korea's situation. He jumps on Hoako in Korea, trying to mess with him. They are mates. They go on holiday together, right? They're friends. And Korea doesn't take particularly kindly to her, but it becomes then a whole scene involving half the teams. It was, I mean, can I admit that I enjoyed it a little bit, Mina? Like that I, I like the drama? Yeah, of course. That's why we watched that, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of fun. I mean, I think we love it because... It's- but it's childish. But you're right, because also it's just, it's the way that he's crying. 
I mean, firstly, it's the red card. The referee is getting involved. They're saying we're friends. Other people are yeah. saying they're friends. Yeah. Korea seemingly being upset, then realizing that it, this was done in jest or whatever it is. Yeah. It was a bad mistake by all means. Yeah. But it was unintentional. Yeah. The guy didn't kill somebody, you know. And then it was just this afterwards, like everyone's so heated up. And in my end, just- he got sent off, by the way, everyone missed it. You're a team that's out to win trophies. This should be behind you and you're preparing for the next one. What did we do wrong? What can we change? We've got to keep our heads in the game. That's what winners are. And I really, one thing I want to say in this is because I've been harsh on Inzaghi because I'm still not going to be a fan of the substitutions for a while. But I think that he handled that so well. Afterwards, he said, we've lost our head. He tried to calm everything down. Maybe it is because he's trying to be respectful to his old club. I don't really know. But it is a case of we still had time to make up for this. We have to be an optimistic team that believe in our powers and not just be a team that takes everything so personally and sees that, oh, well, we've only got 10 minutes now. We're going to lose the game. Why? You're into Your squad is better than everyone mm-hmm. out there. And so I loved how he had prepared this match. I loved what he did to try to destroy Lazio. I thought they were the better team. I am so upset for him that this all fell apart from psychological reasons. Yeah, really, really fascinating sort of study in in the psychology of a football game. Because I thought Inter, while not perfect, were the better team mm. until until they lost their heads. But I just want to ask as well, is Lazio the anti-Roma where they only win the big games? <laughs> right? Win the derby, beat Inter. I mean, this was, this was a, a, I think, a really important win for Lazio Sadi, being honest, because they haven't been great in a consistent way. Um, but if you win the derby and you can beat Inter, you're, you're going to get a bit more credit. And so, yes, I think a, a really big win for Lazio to keep them just hanging around in what is now a very congested bunch around fourth place. I don't know whether we should talk through the league table. We'll do that later because we're going to talk about the other games. So I think we'll take a quick break here and we'll come back to talk about more games in a second. Sorry, Nikki, I, I, I feel like there's just so much controversy and I'm so angry because not that I needed Inter to win this, but it just, oh, anyway, I think we need a break and we need to move on to happier things so that, you know, we, we change the pattern and I can stop being the witch of Serie A and start being perhaps somebody who's a little bit happier. So in order to do this, I think it's a great thing to do if we give a shout out to supporters and read some of the comments that they left us. Because everyone wants to read how wonderful they are. Um, so We are pretty great now that I think about it. I think so too. I really do. Um, I mean, I see quite a few here that are very, very lovely. I'll start with this one because it is an interfan. Interista Valdese. Um, thank you for writing in um, for your support. Glad to have your voices as part of my morning narrative week by week. Keep going. Yay! I'm so glad you like it. Um, And even though like some of my voice usually is like, it's winter here. Well, I mean, it's apparently like autumn, but it's not. Um, So we hope we can continue to be part of your morning narrative. It is. It's it's sad, Mina, to to update everyone. I know this is what people are really tuning in for. I am now in my new flat (laughs) after much discussed new flat. And I remember when I first came to view it, it was summer and sunshine was flooding through the window. And now I'm in here and there's scaffolding outside because they're painting the outside of the building and all I can see is grey clothes. But we'll get back Aww. to summer. It'll happen again in, in a year's time. 
There's no more ambulances going by. So I feel like you're in a safer spot. (laughs) There's definitely fewer here. There's definitely fewer. I'm going to read a comment from another supporter, Zed, who writes, the most exciting Serie A season in years deserves an equally exciting podcast. Well, I I hope we are doing justice to it, Zed, because I actually agree with you. I think this Serie A season has been brilliant so far and long may it continue. Remember, you can make a one-off contribution via seriachronicles.com forward slash supporter. That's not just said, that's anyone. Um, and <laughs> poor Zed, Zed, you've done enough, Zed, you've done enough. <laughs> you really have, thank you. Seriach Chronicles is also uh, looking into um, the option of getting a sponsor. That's something we've been uh, looking at as we try to work out how to keep the podcast moving in the right direction. We um obviously want this show to go on and be a continued success and we don't want to just rely on your donations as generous as they have been. If you are listening to this podcast and you are or know of a business that might be looking to reach audiences across the world, we have global listening, Amina, but certainly in the United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, Ireland and beyond, then get in touch by the email address marketing at mediachronicles.com.au. That's marketing at mediachronicles.com.au. Send an email to that address and our marketing team, look, I'm going to make it sound more dramatic than it is. Our marketing team, thousands of them, <laughs> will, um, will help you out. I think we should move on, Mina, to talking about the other games this weekend, which included a Milan beating Verona 3-2, which in some ways is the most predictable score of the weekend because Verona, this is an extraordinary statistic, I think, Mina. Verona have played 68 times in their history at San Siro. That's against Milan and Inter. And they have never won there. What? They've never won there. They were so but they close. were 2-0 up. Oh. For the second season running, 2-0 up against Milan, and they wound up losing 3-2. Firstly, can I just say, like, plaudits to Igor Judah. Verona are so fun to watch under him. Um, and I and I honestly right. didn't think, that, yeah, I didn't think the change would bring or yield this type of performance, these types of results. And I think if there's ever a way to measure how Milan keep getting better and how they keep improving year on year, you know that this time last year when Verona had raced to a 2-0, um, scoreline by the 20th minute, Milan ended up drawing that game. On this occasion, they won it. And they won it despite having the likes of Teo Hernandez out, Benesser not in, not in his like absolute brilliant self, um, with quite a lot of absences, including Mike Manian at the back. And yet they still pulled off a performance of champions. I think it needed Stefano Pioli to realize that maybe the men he chose on was just taking things a little bit too for granted, you know. Um, it's it's fine to deal with absences, but perhaps don't change your team that much. And then he introduced the powers that be. But what I think was really interesting for me, my favorite storyline of all of this is that third goal. Because it's almost like Milan have their intimidating quality back. destra, cross. In area. Goal! 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 
it's like, oh my God, me and I are about to score. I have to get rid of this ball. No, I've just scored it myself. <laughs> you know, And like, I just imagine like that's what's, what's going through his head. And Milan managed to, you know, get a, their win largely based because their aura, their, their desire to get back into this game had made such a difference on a psychological level that Verona was scared. And that, that is really Milan back to where they should be. Well, not just their team more, I mean, I think it's interesting that that happened. We're talking about um, Gunter scored an own goal. So Milan were 2-0 down very early on. Um, I thought being, frankly, totally outplayed for a lot of that first yeah. half, um, but came back to win 3-2. And the final goal was an own goal by Gunter, which is a, a cross that comes into the box from Castellejo, and he just basically hacks it into his own net. And one of the many things that's interesting about that is I'm trying to think if that happened the last time because Ibrahimovic has played two games this season, both times as a substitute. This, and he was on the pitch for with with Olivier Giroud for just a few minutes of this game, about five or ten minutes. I can't remember exactly how many. Um, and this is in that period when they're both on the pitch. So you've got Ibrahimovic behind you, and you've got Giroud attacking the area in front of you. And yes, the defender takes a very nervous swing at the ball, oh. and it, it ends up in his own net. And everyone in Italy, of course, the, the, the media anyway, saying it's Kazebra's behind you. And I can imagine that a little bit, you know, it's a bit like, it's a bit panto, isn't it? He's behind you and you've got Ibrahimovic looming over you. But, but he missed a penalty against them last year. That's true. That's true. I, there's, there's a lot to say about how this game went. Um, I think, first of all, to be critical, I think while I understand Pioli's position, he's got some really big absences. Mike Magnan is injured, which is a huge blow. And then you get Teo Hernandez and Brian Diaz, both of whom important starters out with COVID as well. I think he took Verona too lightly. Um, so can I, I just stop for a second? That, Nikki, to- I love how you say COVID. Yeah. I love it. It is something that COVID. I've noticed in everything that we do. And when you say it, I don't know why. It oh, no. really thrills me. Am I making COVID sound good? No, because I say COVID and you say COVID. I'm not sure that's the thing I want to do. <laughs> you say COVID. COVID. Has anyone else noticed this or COVID. is this just me? But I just wanted to bring that as a side note. Do I have a nice way of saying COVID? <laughs> COVID. <laughs> I, it's the first time it's been said to me, but maybe other people are thinking it. Um, I also now, like, I wonder if I say COVID sometimes. I don't know, COVID. Anyway. Brahim Diaz and Tiernan is both out um, with with COVID. <laughs> I'm now very conscious of. But on top of that, he makes the choice to rest several starters. Yeah. So out of this starting eleven, he leaves Simon Kier. He leaves uh, Sandro Tonali, who I think is is to me now established as the starter ahead of Benasser, and Rafael Leao. Now, as fate would have it. Rebic gets injured. Leao comes into the game in the 36th minute, and thank God he did from Milan's point of view because Leao was once again brilliant. And one of my favourite moments of this whole game and probably the whole weekend is the cross that he sends in to Giroud for the for the Milan's first goal. He's grinning, Mina. Like he's got this great big grin on his face because he's just turned two players inside out and he's just loving life. And I am I'm so enjoying Rafael Leal this season. I don't know if you're feeling that that joy with me. It's funny because obviously um, I'm a big fan of Galtier and, and I think that, you know, he helped develop so many great players. I mean, imagine moving from that coach to Stefano Pioli, who's just another brilliant man and helping you develop even further. Yeah. Leao, I wasn't, you know, everyone was like, oh, look at him. He's making the difference this season. I was like, oh, is, is he though? Is he like the, because I was just watching him. There was just this moment against Liverpool where I thought, you know, wonderful 
wonderful play, wonderful performance. And then that final ball was missing and it was sort of irritating with me, irritating me a little bit. But he is growing game on game. But here's the thing, what I find fascinating is you're right, it is the joy, but it's also how much he's doing for the team, how much he's intercepting, how much he's tackling, how much he's trying to win back possession, his fight, his desire. It, it, that has changed. And I and I, I feel like sometimes Leal played with a certain level of like, yeah, it's all cool, like I'm chilled, you know, like it, it, a little bit sort of, I don't know, lackadaisical, I don't know what the right word is. Um, but on this occasion, I just feel there's a part of him that's very intent on making the difference, very intent on being the man who makes the impact. And when you put that together and you, you have to turn around and think to yourself, Pioli has this magical ability to just be able to call on Leao and he's just grown exponentially, Calabria, and he's just grown exponentially. You know, I'm going to go for Kroonich on the bench and Castillejo on the bench, which I'm sure you're going to want to, you're the best at storytelling, but Castillejo's story <laughs> is one that I'm going to give you because wow, wow for him. And I'm not going to lie, I definitely shed a tear. Like, because just seeing anyone that oh. emotional is, it's so, it's what we're here for, right? Sono un ragazzo così che alla prima opportunità mi piace, mi piace lasciare anche l'anima dentro il campo. Oggi, grazie alla poi della mia famiglia, ai miei amici e anche grazie a Dio sicuramente il calcio è, è così bello, no? Ieri non, non ti voleva neanche la tua mamma e, e, oggi, e oggi posso esultare così con, con i tifosi a San Siro, a casa mia. Sono, sono molto contento. It was hard not to get swept up in it. It was. Um, I mean, I think there's there's a number of players who play defining roles in this game. I I, I want to say quickly before I talk about Casale because I, I actually wrote about um, Giroud this morning. And I think Giroud is so pivotal, being the experienced striker he is, being the cool head to score that first goal. Because without that first goal, nothing happens. And he just had the perfect movement to attack that cross from Leal. But Leao and then Castillejo become the other two big axes of, of this win because the second goal that Milan get is, it's another ball from, from uh, Leao that creates it. It's a, a, a back of the heel flick, which is just again, very, very Rafael Leao feeling himself in this moment. But then Castillejo is the player who runs into the area and gets brought down for the penalty, which Milan score, equalized go 2-2. And then Castillejo again, is the player who puts the ball into the area, which Gunter puts into his own net for the own goal. So Cassiello, who is kind of, um, well, not kind of, who has been a really sort of forgotten man at Milan. And to the point that this summer was not wanted by Milan. I mean, both Pioli and the club's directors had effectively signed him off as a player who could be let go of, who was expendable. And Clearly, he didn't want to go. He wanted to to stick it out and, and to make this this um, thing happen for him at Milan. And going from that low of feeling totally unwanted in the summer, he had fans on his back making him into a scapegoat because he hadn't played so great at the end of last season. He had the club effectively saying that he wasn't wanted. As he put it in his post-match comments, even my mum didn't <laughs> want me at that point, which I'm sure isn't true. I'm sure that isn't true. But to go from that to this point where he feels like the fans all want to come and celebrate with him outside his home. It was overwhelming for him and, and he had a little cry about it on the pitch. And it was, it was a really beautiful moment. And again, what a moment of, of, of Pioli magic. He always has that little, 
whatever needs to be said to these players to get the most out of them. He finds those those words and, and gets those reactions. I think we're so used to in, in Italy, like we're so obsessed with the word grinta, right? And, and like just this determination and warrior-like and wow, how fabulous to have coaches like um, Mourinho, Antonio Conte, Allegri, who just create these men who, who want to win at all costs. But what Pioli has is a group of really nice players like Mancini does for the national team, you know? They all feel like good yes, kids, though. Just they? really, the, the the affection shown to Castillier for was something out of this world, frankly speaking. I mean, this guy was really down and out. I mean, he had to suspend his Twitter account because he couldn't deal with the level of abuse that was being aimed at him because his presence at Milan meant that they couldn't bring in another type of player that could affect this team. And he apparently was was the one who was told, you know. Just, just accept the move from Hertha Berlin or just accept the move from CSK Moscow. Um, this is with the fans writing to him. And he wanted to stay in Milan. Mm. He really desperately wanted to make the difference for this team. And afterwards, when he scored and there were tears in his eyes, you could see Giroud embracing him. You could see everyone coming up to him and purely hugging him and cuddling him. And and more importantly, also on social media, it was, you know, Tamori, it was Calabria, it was uh, Maldini, all of them writing to say, like, well done. You are our brother and we're so happy for you and we always want the best for you. And that level of camaraderie, you know, when you look at all these other sides and you just see them as being robots who win um, or robots that are just obsessed with this idea of everything, like, you know, like uh, trophies and success and this Milan side look like, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to try to do it, but we're going to have fun along the way and we're going to be really good to each other. And we're just going to, I don't know, just, just kind of be everything I want to be. I want to be part of them. <laughs> so you've got me thinking like there's sort of, you feel like they're a group of boys. You could just like have, you know, you have them kicking around in your garden and coming in and using the kitchen. You wouldn't worry about yes. them. They're all, good. they're all good kids. Like it's that sort of feeling. Like that's how I feel about this team. But also I would say, I, I thought one of the other visuals that really stayed with me in this game. So Giroud scores and he goes right away to get the ball out of the goal and, and run back to halfway with it. But then when Kessie scores his penalty and Kessie goes to, goes to celebrate for a moment, there's literally two teammates who grab him within about a second and are dragging him back off to halfway. It's like, no, we don't settle for draws here. Like we don't settle for two, two. Like I know we were two no down, but we want to win this. And that mindset is, is there right now, I think. And look, um, I didn't sort of, sort of read it out before, but I think it's worth, even though it's only eight games, it's worth visiting the league table for a moment because right now, Napoli, of course, have won eight out of eight. We'll talk about them in just a second, but Milan, 22 points just behind them. There's already a five point gap to third. These two teams are Fine. are starting to, to make a statement. They're starting to make a statement. It's a long season. Five points is, is it's, it's laughable in the context of a season. It's, of course, it's not insurmountable. But this is Milan's fastest start since they went to three points for a win in Serie A. That's about 30 years nearly. It's, it's been something. Like it's really been something. And, and, um, I, I, week by week, I see them more and more. It's like, gosh, this is really a team that, that can do this, that can, that can win the Scudetto. It's funny. We loved Atalanta, but now I just want the world to see Milan and, and, and really just to, I just, I think they're just a wonderful example of everything that Italian football should be. But, uh, Napoli next. Yeah. Well, just to say quickly, I mean, by the time people listen to this, it's going to be either just about to happen or it would have already happened. They've got a huge Champions League game against Porto yeah. the week. I think they've played pretty well in their Champions League game so far, but they haven't got results. They do need to win that yeah. one. It's a shame they don't have Brahim Diaz. Yeah, and Antoine Diaz, yeah. I think it's a huge loss. 
But yes, Napoli. Napoli, Mina, also known as the Victor Osimhen show. At this <laughs> it point really is. Because, it really is. <laughs> because I'm not sure without him if they win this game, if I'm being honest. I know it's not like his sort of most dramatic goal. He scored more beautiful goals than this, but this game felt like it was heading towards a draw that I don't think would have um, been an unfair affection on the game. I think Torino played pretty well. But in the end, at the moment, when you need him, Ossiman's there, isn't he? I mean, the guy's unplayable. Like, he's got to be. He scored eight goals for Napoli so far this season. That's including Europa League games as well. But he just doesn't give up. And it's it's the physicality. It's the pace. It's the intelligence to know how to shake off his defenders. Because I thought Bremer was really suffocating him over there and doing a great job. Torino... I mean, I really just want to say, like, it's amazing and remarkable the difference that Ivan Juric has made on the side. And this is a side that is without Dennis Pratt, without Simone Zaza, without Piazza. Belotti just came back. So many absences. Uh, a club doctor that has walked away from the club because of the criticism of Ivan Juric, because of how many are absent and injured. This is a team with so many problems and so many issues, and yet they are so well placed on the pitch. So capable of trying to really neutralize everything that Napoli tried to do, whether they tried to be vertical, whether they tried to hold possession. They were fabulous. And yet Osserman is the difference maker. I, he just, his ability to get away, his always never say die attitude, this, but it's not because he's desperate to succeed. I don't know how to explain. He's just always a man who just seems generous in everything he does. It's like he's got to keep trying for the 90 minutes because he's just so happy to be part of it. And that's what I think is so fun to watch with Osman. You don't, it's not an ego thing. You don't watch this player and think he's trying to prove himself. He's just not. He really loves being there and he's constantly trying to find a way of, of making the difference. And uh, this is, a team that I'm so hard on because on a psychological level, I think they collapse so quickly sometimes um, or never really give their all. Remember, it's Ivan Juric that stopped them from getting into the top four last season. It was his Hellas Verona that tied them in the end that allowed Juve to get into the top four. So this is a tough match for them. And Juric had, his team made, created a lot of chances, but obviously it's some really boneheaded decisions that didn't allow them to necessarily make the difference. But Osman, like, is he the best player in Serie A at the moment? I think it's so fascinating because actually, like, of, of all the things about him, like, I, I, I think unlike other players I've seen who are forwards who have his physique, so say someone, um, I don't know, perhaps it's just Arsenal fan of me thinking this, but like um, someone like Mike Kanu comes to mind. And I think Kanu's physicality was such like a, a critical part of who he was as a footballer. Whereas when I watch Osman, it's, it's not. Like I actually like a lot of the time what, what takes my breath away is his balance, his coordination, the way that he uses his, his body to shield the ball. Mm. But then he still has that physicality on top of all of that. Like in the end, in this, in this moment, in this game, Napoli needed someone who was six foot four to come along and win that header in the box. It was like, you know what? This is an option that you also have with Victor Osimhen. When it isn't him being just outrageous with his feet, which he is, then it, you know what? We can also just have him be a, a giant, which he is as well. I think he's he's absolutely the difference for this team. I think to be to give ourselves some credit, I think we said that about Napoli before the season started. At least I did. <laughs> I said it on this podcast. 
But it is the difference between Napoli this season and last season is that he missed a lot of time and, and now he's there. And actually, in some ways, this game almost highlights it more than any other game so far because we we revisited another narrative about Napoli, which is that sometimes in high-pressure moments, Lorenzo Insigne, who's brilliant as a footballer, lets you down. And the penalty situation at that club, I, you can't let him keep taking them, I don't think. He's, he's not taking good penalties at the moment. But I remember doing podcasts with you, Mina, where we had these big conversations about whether or not Insigne was mentally strong enough for these moments. And now it's like, well, okay, but if he isn't, it's all right, awesome, and we'll fix it afterwards. I I, I would still let him take the penalties. I don't know why. I, I guess I I feel like a lot of people miss penalties. I mean, Zlatan misses penalties. The only issue I have with him is that when he's substituted, can you just stop kicking all those water bottles? Like, or frankly speaking, it's annoying. Like, your, your petulance at the age of 30 is really disappointing for me to watch. Like, grow up. Yeah. And I, I don't know why. It's like, oh, I didn't make a difference. I wasn't the hero. But you not kick a water bottle? I might kick a water bottle sometimes. Yeah, once or <laughs> twice. But it's like he's either not like w- wanting to talk to the coach or he's kicking a bottle. Just stop, man. Stop. Just, just help the team. And if you don't want to help the team, then I, I know that he's just frustrated because he wants to give us all. So I guess it's a normal human reaction. But it, sometimes it's just annoying for me to watch him. But I, I the spine of the team. It's very good. Like Rahmani's performances at the back, really, I, I feel like he and Koulibaly just work so well together. And then Gisa is just, wow. And then you've got Osman up top, right? So, so you're just thinking there's creativity from Fabian Ruiz when they need it, you know? And otherwise, there's lots of creativity all around. They had so many opportunities there, including the Di Lorenzo goal that wasn't that was chalked off. Um, Lozano hit, obviously, the woodwork. There are so many in senior miss the penalty. There were opportunities for them to really win this match comprehensively. But Juric also, sorry, Juric, I was calling Juric. Torino, not Juric. Torino also had their opportunities, but Brekelau is always very intelligent with his final decision. He's going to get there. He's he's wonderful, Josep Brekelau. So, um, but I think here's the thing. Like I look at, I sort of look at the likes of the other challenges, you know, Milan. They can rely on Kronish. They can bring on Castillejo. They can turn, I don't know, me onto probably Zlatan, Zlatan if I was on that bench, you know. You look at Allegri and he can <laughs> say to himself, all right, I don't have this, but I can make it work without a striker. I can make it work with Benedeschi as, as fullback or whatever it is. You know, Inter have the squad depth that I think people just dream of, right? And then I wonder with Napoli what will happen if they don't have Osterman. So they are maybe a little bit more of a side that's dependent on some of their stars, you know, you know, Anguisa, Koulibaly, perhaps. And, 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 and this is where, you know, awesome. And obviously, and so I wonder what will happen when they are not there. It's, it's just Victor Osman. It's nothing else. It's not true. That's definitely not true. <laughs> um, but what it is, is eight wins out of eight, which is their um, joint best start to a Serie A season ever. So um, not, too shabby from Napoli. Mina, as always, we get into these topics and we talk and talk. And then I realize, gosh, we've we've already rattled through an hour here. We, we need to oh, crack on and, and see if there's other things that we want to um maybe it's not an hour yet. We've certainly been talking for a while. Are there any other topics that we want to talk about quickly from uh this latest round 
I don't know if there's any other games that you were particularly keen to pick out. Certainly Atalanta, um, we have probably not talked about enough this season. Duvan Zapata becoming the first Colombian player ever to score 100 goals in Serie A is quite something. Um, it's quite something wow. whether you're Colombian or not, but certainly 100 goals for Duvan Zapata, which when you think relatively late starter in terms of getting going, certainly is pretty impressive. I don't know if there are other notes from this weekend you wanted to pick out. Uh, one thing we should mention is Sian Tian have sacked their coach, um, Castori, yes. and he has been replaced by Stefano Colant. Who is it? It is him, right? Oh, for a second there. Colantuono. Colantuono. I think so, yeah. Colantuono. And um, so that's worth mentioning. Also, Jao Pedro, six goals in eight games. Wow. Uh, so really, there's not in a million years would you have convinced me that Sampdoria were going to lose to Cagliari. Um, but they did. And Nandes is amazing. I don't know what they would do without him and without Jao Pedro. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I did want to ask you as well, Mina, about Bad Sport on Netflix. Um, you appeared as part of this uh, documentary, Bad Sport is a Netflix series, mm-hmm. but there was an episode about the Calciopoli scandal in Turin, which you were part of. I um, watched it last night and it's really fascinating. Um, our old friend uh, Gab Marcotti is also on this one. I'm really curious to know because it, it it really focuses this this documentary on the story of Luciano Moggi and his involvement. I think it does a really great job, especially if you are someone who knows loosely about Calciopoli. If you are familiar with the concept but you don't understand the the detail of it, I think this this documentary might really help you to understand it because the thing that I've always struggled with with Calciopoli is. I think an English audience wants to refer to it because they heard about this big scandal in Italian football and Juventus got relegated and clubs were punished. They want to refer to it as a match-fixing scandal, which actually isn't. There's never any proof in Calciopoli of fixed matches. What there is, is lots of evidence of extremely not um, appropriate relationships between Luciano Moggi and the people who are choosing the referees uh, for for matches. So there's no evidence of a referee being made to make decisions, of being made to uh, uh, throw a game. But there is evidence that he's strongly influences which referees get assigned to which games, and not just Juventus games either. Even there's a point in the documentary they talk about um, a Fiorentina game where it was convenient for Juventus for a bunch of Fiorentina players to get booked, and so a referee who's very card-happy gets assigned to it. I was curious to know how you felt as someone who is an acknowledged and proud Juventina mm. um, revisiting this story and, and how, um, how you feel about that whole period under Moji and, and how you relate to it now. Oh, it's an interesting question that I don't actually know how to respond. It's annoying when you have such a complicated issue and you have an hour um, and you're trying to you know, you're trying to get, because obviously the most important part of this documentary was being bringing in Moji. And at the time, we didn't know if that was something that was possible at the time. Um, obviously, producers made it work. He wanted to be a part of it. And just to clarify that, what Mina's saying, Moji's interviewed on the show, which is fascinating because I hadn't heard him interview this directly about it before. No. Yeah, really. And I yeah. think that. Sorry, carry on, just want to make sure that was clear. Also, I think that for a lot of us who 
well, a lot of people perhaps who don't speak Italian who weren't able to follow everything that was going on at the time. Obviously, I'm a Juventus fan, so for me, it was like my life. Um, but for others, hearing him crying on the phone, I think was was a little bit shocking for me um, because Monji did have that aura. And I think that was really perfectly uh, encapsulated in the documentary that he was this man that sort of just seemed to own everything. You know, he was sporting director of Juventus, but it seemed like his power was omnipotent. Like he was everywhere. I mean, police, he would have police escorts to certain things. Um, everyone wanted a piece of him. He had managed to rise from sort of a quite humble background to being one of the most powerful men in the industry. Um, if not the, the most powerful. And it's, it's interesting because they sort of juxtaposition his position like against like Berlusconi is this big match between Milan and Juve. And despite one of them being like the, one of the most famous politicians, you know, former president, former prime minister of Italy, Monji still looked like he had the more, more power. And then you hear this phone call in which he's crying and you're thinking, wow, like, like this is how big Calciopoli was. This was the end of his career. This was the end of Juve as being this, you know, overpowering team. And there was a lot that was sort of just mentioned at the end, like, oh, Milan were also deducted points and this, but it doesn't go into what happened. And also, for example, the legal cases in which Monji and his team actually released a bunch of phone calls that showed how much of the other people who are important in their clubs, whether sporting directors or, or otherwise, were also contacting or had relationships with referees. So that, again, wasn't looked at. And I am going to mention that because I am a Juventus fan. And I think it's important from a journalistic point of view to point out that this was something that was happening and should have never happened from anyone. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, people say it destroyed football. Of course it did. I mean, I think Italian football was already in many ways being destroyed. Um, and, through different things that had happened as well that there are other episodes that required, but there was also drug scandals before and there was all types of different things. But it, I just wish that there were just more hours to have gone through further things than, but we had to pick so, sort of important things like Paparesta, like, you know, what happened um, between Milan and Juve and that rivalry to get to, to win the Scudetto. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was the, the documentary came out and I was going to get like a morning croissant and I'm in the queue to pay and I get like a, a little nudge on my elbow and I turn around and it's Antonio Giraudo <laughs> and he's like ciao and I was like and I just and I really wanted to be like did you watch it but I, I, I didn't know what to say you know so I just went hey how are you you know like and then he was like yeah I'm, I'm okay um it, it should be noted that I, I don't really understand much of what he says because my Italian is not that strong. <laughs> so there's all, all the conversations are very limited, but he literally lives like four rows down from me. So I see him a lot um, when he, when he's here. So, but I, I just, when I see that and I just think, God, can you imagine like now bumping into Luciano Moggi? But yeah, I mean, it was, I'm just glad that that period's over and we're into different things now in Italy. Yeah, for anyone who's not familiar, Antonio Girardo was a director of Juventus in, in this period, um, which is why uh, that's a pretty random person to bump into when you're getting your coffee. Yeah, Triad, it was... Sorry, no, finish. No, I was going to say, obviously, Juventus Triad was Bettega, or Girardo and uh, Luciano Moggi. And so to see any of them um, 
<laughs> in this time, especially when the documentary has just been released, you know. But my my biggest fear was that Juve were going to, because obviously I have really, I didn't want to be sort of outcasted from that. And there were things, because we did this in 2019, like that, that affected me because our interviews were so long. And obviously a lot of it will get edited out for the one hour, right? And, you know, for for a really long time, I'm not I'm on a personal level for seven months, I was really worried about some of the things that I said because two years ago or three, I wasn't perhaps so conservative in what I said. I mean, I'm still not conservative. I'm never on the fence. Yeah. But there was a part of me that was like, maybe I said too much, or maybe I gave away my emotions too much. But I'm really glad for like Royal Productions to have been able to see through what was emotional and what was not and, and give me like my journalistic integrity, you know. I, I thought it was a really well put together documentary. I didn't think I didn't think you said anything that was um lacking integrity, Mina. I think I might have cried at one point, <laughs> which was cut out. <laughs> I agree with you that more time would have been better. There's so much to say about that topic. It's a huge topic. Um, and the, any attempt to try to pick up everything that wasn't said here at the end of a podcast that's even shorter would be ridiculous. I definitely would recommend the podcast, the, podcast, the documentary people who, who want to know more about the topic. And I, I think that one of the things that was really sort of the other really powerful sort of point, I think, that comes up in that documentary is that the kind of power we're talking about, there's this really muddy overlap between things that are just outright wrong. You know, like the fact, again, that the refereeing decisions, the assignment of of referees to matches was supposed to be randomised at that time, was supposed to be completely uh, not influenceable, in fact. And yet you have a recording of Modji on the phone saying, well, these referees for these matches would be good. And then all of those assignments happen randomly. <laughs> you have that. But then you also have this, this other kind of power, which is soft power, which is talked about where he basically can get his mates in the media to put the, his talking points on, on national TV and, and influence everything that happens by making them into these big national stories. And I think that form of soft power no one should kid themselves that that's gone away. I think that's still very much a part of, not just Italian no, everywhere. but I think it's really actually, but I think it's really interesting knowing, you know, seeing with clarity that soft power, which again, that is, that is not an illegal kind of power to be able to have a friend in the media and say, you know, that's um, be great if you talked about this. I, uh, I think what's interesting or popped into my head anyway was Antonio Conte at Inter saying that he didn't get the protection at Inter that he was used to from Juventus. Now, of course, Conte was managing Juventus long after Moji, but they're, they're sort of between the, the playing career and everything else, there's, there's some overlap as well. So, But can I just also mention also Ronaldo? Feeling, do, do, do. I was going to say like, you know, on the, just to oppose that is Ronaldo feeling that, that he had more power when he was under Florentino Perez than when he came at Juventus. So when he was sent off against Valencia in the Champions League, something that had never happened to him in his career, that he didn't win the Ballon d'Or and it went to Luka Modric he immediately felt that he was in a club that was no longer as powerful. So it's interesting to see, and now speaking because of what's happening and and lots of questions being asked about why the media aren't jumping on Ole Solskjaer's back, that soft power might still exist, not, not because of him or other people, but because of those who would benefit from it. That still exists, sadly. And, and, and I wonder how much of it does influence things, you know? Absolutely. Um, and yes, huge topic. Um, we need a whole, we'll have to make a, a separate soft power podcast. <laughs> anyway, 
That's all I'll say about it. Everyone go and, and watch Bad Sport. I recommend it. But I think that is pretty much all we have time for. We've covered all or tried to cover all the big matches for you. So we really hope you enjoyed that. Serie A Chronicles will be back on Friday with another Chronicles Q&A mailbag episode. Get your questions in to us on Twitter at Serie A Pod with the hashtag Chronicles Q&A. Find both of us on Twitter at Nikki Bandini, at Mina Rizuki, and there's the show's handle, which is at Serie A Pod. All the links for Serie A Chronicles social media will be in the show notes. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure they're super positive and wonderful and, and awfully complimentary that when I read them, I have a smile on my face. Otherwise, don't bother. Thank you very much. <laughs> Consider supporting the show at setihowchronicles.com forward slash supporter. I love when she starts laughing. And remember, <laughs> for sponsorship opportunities, please email marketing at mediachronicles.com.au. And that's to everyone and not just Zed. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Ciao for now. I always love these intros and outros. They make me laugh. Evani, Rizzitelli. Rizzitelli per Evani. Penetra da sinistra Evani. Effettua il traversone. C'è Virdis. E gol! Gol di Pietro Paolo Virdis sul traversone di Evani, gol in combinazione fra i due milanisti nella prima azione della ripresa, al quinto. Abbiamo segnato e vedete l'esultanza dei tifosi italiani, Virdis 1-0 per l'Italia. Sport Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.